In the road to Emmaus, you may remember Jesus was suddenly walking with some of his disciples. And he explained to them the Old Testament and all the ways that it pointed to him. And you have probably heard or even yourself wondered at how glorious it would have been to be on the road that day. Would that not have been marvelous to have Jesus himself expounding the Old Testament to you and saying, and here, and here, and here, did these not point to me? Of course, he didn't say to me, but what a glorious thing it would have been to have Jesus himself explain the Old Testament prophecies. This is, of course, true, except I can't help but wonder sometimes whether we would really have wanted to hear what he said. Truth is that Jesus did some things like this throughout his ministry. He taught from the Old Testament over and over and over again. And sometimes people rejoiced and sometimes they were very angry at what he said. And it just so happens that our passage this morning, 1 Kings 17, 1-16, has a story that Jesus expounds during his ministry on earth. And it's not one where the people responded with rejoicing. Let me read it to you from Luke 4, 24 through 30. And he, Jesus, said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Of course, he was speaking in his hometown at this point, and he had not been welcome. So that's the context. He says, No prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But of course, 
They didn't. They couldn't. The time had not yet come, and that was not how he was going to die. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Verse 30 concludes. Why were the people so angry that Jesus points out Elijah going to a woman in Zarephath? I mean, they were really angry, weren't they? If somebody gets angry enough at church, and that's where he was, he was in the synagogue, he was at church, he was, he was preaching a very short sermon, from what we have recorded of it, with a very large reaction. If somebody gets angry enough, they might frown. I've had people frown at me when I was preaching. Sometimes out of confusion, I will grant. Other times out of frustration with what I'm saying because I was wrong. And other times out of frustration with what I'm saying because I was right. Jesus, of course, was right in what he was speaking, right? If somebody gets really angry, they might walk out. I've seen people walk out before from church when they got angry. Stand up and leave. That's always a possibility, isn't it? If they get really, truly exercised, they might even speak up and object out loud in the middle of church. If you can imagine it, I have seen this as well. But it takes a certain kind of anger, doesn't it, to take the preacher to the top of a hill so you can throw him off a cliff? That the whole church responds in anger all at once with that level of hatred for what has been said. That kind of goes beyond the normal state of things at church, right? So why in the world were the people so angry at what Jesus said? Isn't it interesting that he points out this, this little thing, who the widow was. Now, if you read this story and you read about Elijah and, and you think, wow, look at the way God provided for him. The birds are bringing him food and there's this miracle of this everlasting food for from this widow, I mean, it's, it's marvelous. Look at the way that God provided for Elijah. You would not be wrong to take that away from this passage. God does provide marvelously and miraculously. If you were to say, I think the point of this story is that we need not worry about 
food and bread and what we, sh- what we will eat and what we will drink and what we will wear. That also would be a good application to draw from this passage. And it's somewhat obvious, right? Nevertheless, you cannot draw from this passage that the people of God will never go hungry or thirsty. Right? Now that might be a temptation to, to turn the corner on your understanding of the passage that you need not worry turns into I will never suffer. Christians will never go hungry. Christians will never be thirsty. Christians will never... But the fact of the matter is Elijah is not just the normal person of Israel, is he? Or of Judah. He's also not just the normal God-fearer who remains a true worshiper, of which there were many, although we don't read of them in this passage. We'll read about them shortly. We'll come to it later in this book. Now, Jesus expounds this passage for us, and he brings out for us a particular point that is made by the, by the passage that we've read this morning that might not seem that obvious to us, but it is actually pointed out quite explicitly. In verse 9, after the Lord has been providing one way for Elijah, that way changes, and he tells him to go to Zarephath. And if that didn't mean anything to you, which is in Sidon. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, Jesus explains, by the way, this isn't in Israel. Right? And this woman is not an Israelite, not one of God's chosen people. This is what makes the people in the synagogue, the people who had gotten up that morning to go to church, to worship God, angry enough to attempt to kill Jesus, the Messiah, who is speaking truth to them in love. This was Jesus speaking the truth in love. It was a hard truth. It was a truth they didn't want to hear, but it was Jesus being loving. What we see here is something that we would prefer most of the time to avoid thinking about, which is the way God judges His people when they turn away from Him. In the book of Romans, 
the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addresses a similar point in speaking of the Jews versus the Gentiles. And Paul's desire that he speaks of is that all the Jews, all of his brothers, would repent. That they would all follow Jesus. But we're also told that They were a branch that was cut off of the tree. And another branch was grafted into the tree. Now, kids, do do you guys know what grafting is? Who Who can tell me what grafting is? Yeah. Yeah, you put it on. Now, now, you wouldn't expect that to work, would you? I wouldn't have thought that was possible when I first heard about it. I, we need to just, you know, super glue it? I don't know. How does a branch become a part of a, another tree? Well, it's possible to do. It, it requires work. You, have to, you do have to cut, and you have to, I mean, that's a, that's a destructive process, right? And, and then you bind it and you make sure that it's able to get beneath the bark on the other tree and that that way all of the nutrients and water that the tree can provide end up being able to flow into the branch that has been grafted on. Now, trees aren't the only place where we do grafting. The only other place that comes to mind readily, though, is skin grafting. It's a painful process. Skin grafting is. Well, here we have an example of this other branch. This widow that is from another tree. Not part of Israel. Not even in the land of Israel. Why? The New Testament tells us it is so that God's people will become jealous. Jealous of the nutrients. Jealous of the living water that flows up from the tree. Jealous of the fruit of the branch that's receiving the nutrients, and so that they would no longer want to be a branch that is separated from the tree. Here we have Elijah. You guys remember the history that we've studied so far. You remember what's going on. You remember that the kingdom is only recently divided. Fairly recently. I know we've been through several kings by now, but, you know, it's one people split into two kingdoms. And you remember Ahab is the king of 
the northern kingdom of Israel. And you remember how wicked he was, worse than all of the other kings that had come before him. And the word of the Lord comes now. And the word of the Lord is, I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting you off from the rain. And I'm cutting you off from me. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. This is by the word of Elijah the Tishbite, right? But it's also by the word of God. He's speaking from the Lord. The message of God. And then what happens? He disappears. There is no more word of God for the people. They are cut off. There is, therefore, no rain. To be cut off from the word of God is to die. To be cut off from the word of God is to be the branch that is broken off, that is replaced by the grafted in branch. To be cut off from the tree, from the, from the main vine is to have no nourishment. It's to have no rain. It's to have no food. Because without any rain, there is no food. This is the picture that we have here. The people have rejected God, and so He cuts them off. And we see it demonstrated to them by Him cutting off the water, and therefore cutting off the food. He sends Elijah away. The man who is God's prophet is gone from that moment. And we'll get later to them hunting for Elijah. Not so that they can repent, of course, but because they're angry at him. Not so that they can seek the Lord. but so that they can kill the Lord's messenger. Isn't it interesting that this is what Jesus goes to when he's in his hometown? God protected Elijah, provided for him, Yes, you could call this uh, God's witness protection program, right? Sends him away so that they don't get angry and kill him. They're going to be angry, but they're not going to be able to kill him. But it's more than that. You have this interesting repetition of words in verse 4 and then verse 9. God says to Elijah, 
I have commanded. Twice. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you. Verse 4. And I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Verse 9. Isn't that weird? God commanded the ravens and they provided. Ravens were unclean. Did you guys know that? I mean, if I told you as you were about to sit down to eat, oh, by the way, a raven brought this, would you want to eat it? You're hungry, huh? (laughs) I wouldn't want to eat it. And if God said, go to a foreign city and an unclean woman there will provide for you, would that be your ideal? No. And yet what we see here is God's power, God's sovereignty over all of creation Inside his kingdom, there is no rain at his command. On the hill, the ravens provide at his command. Outside his kingdom, the widow who is about to starve along with her son, she'll provide at his command. God is truly in control. Isn't he? Isn't that a beautiful thing? And yet, the people are so angry at Jesus pointing out that Elijah goes to a woman in Zarephath that they're ready to kill him. You know, Elijah, from this moment, is what I would call MIA, missing in action. He's definitely started a conflict. There is action. And he's definitely missing, as far as the Israelites are concerned. So was the rain. Rain was missing. But more than Elijah and more than the rain, as I've already pointed out, God's word is missing in action here. And this is God's judgment on them. Just as Jesus refuses to do miracles, actually says is, really unable, in a strange turn of events, to do many miracles for his hometown, his homeland. 
And that is God's judgment on them for their unbelief. So here we see God's word being withheld is God's judgment on the Israelites. And so the, the people at the time of Jesus understood what Jesus was saying. He was comparing them to the Israelites who had rejected God, who were worshiping Baal, Asherah, and were described in their scriptures as the worst. Ahab was the worst, and, and Israel was the worst. And Jesus says, that's who you're like. And you know what? God wasn't missing. His word hadn't lost its power. God sent it elsewhere. Elijah wasn't sent to an Israelite widow to provide and be provided for. He was sent to the widow in Zarephath in Sidon. Now, you've got two people, two, two groups of people, basically, in this story. You've got the Israelites, who no longer receive God's word because of their hardness of heart, and no longer receive rain as judgment, both of those things as judgment on them, right? And then you've got the widow at Zarephath. And I've, I've talked about the being cut off, cut off from God's word, but, but now let's look at the widow. This is a big drought. We've been hearing about a big drought out west, right? A super drought. We're in the middle of a super drought out west. That's not a super drought. This is a super drought. There's no food left. We'll know when we're in a super drought, there will be no food left. where this widow is, and her son. And God has commanded a widow there to provide for him. He calls, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And she is going to get it. And he says, and some food, please. There's no food, remember? There is no food left. And she tells him, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, and only a handful of flour in the bowl, and a little oil in the jar. Now, how much is a handful? I've got decently big hands. A handful, maybe a cup if you're lucky, of flour, right? You think you could hold a, a cup of flour in your hand? Maybe if you use both hands, then it's two handfuls. 
Yesterday, some of my children were making cookies. How many cookies did you make? 52. So how, much, how many cups of flour was it? Just three? Must be little cookies. Three cups. We can just use three cups without thinking about it. For cookies. When you only have a handful of flour left and a tiny bit of oil, and somebody says, bring me bread. It takes flour to make bread. And that's all that's left. And she was about to make it for her and her son to have their last meal and then die. Elijah says, these wonderful words that I think we hear so often that make us angry. Do not fear. Oh, come on now. Don't tell me do not fear. I know when I have something to fear. Do not fear. Command that's given so many times in the Bible. So many times we're commanded not to fear, aren't we? We always think there's something for us to fear. What if? You start filling that in and you realize all the things that could happen and most of them maybe you don't ever think about and so you're not afraid of them. You don't fear them. But then there are the things that that weigh on you, that you are afraid of, that you fear. And here's a woman who is about to die. She wants to have food. And Elijah says, give me food. She says, I can't, I don't have enough. I'm about to use the, the, the rest for me and my son. He says, don't be afraid. Now, at that point, you've got a choice. You can either respond by faith the way she does without fear. Clearly, she responds without fear, doesn't she? She, makes, she, she does what he says. She, she makes food for him first. Crazy. Isn't that what faith always looks like? Crazy? She responded with faith and she obeyed. Do not fear. Go. Do as you have said. Make something to eat for you and your son. Right? Do as you have said. But make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. It's not even just share it three ways and we'll all die together. It's make something for me first and then 
for you. And she knows, of course, what a handful of flour can make. It's not enough to do that. Elijah does give her this wonderful postscript. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Now that's a promise, isn't it? That's a promise. The question is, do you believe it? If you're her, what do you do? Do you make bread for you and your son? Or do you make bread for Elijah? You think as she's mixing the bread, the, the, the flour and the oil together? You think she's thinking, who am I going to give it to? I bet you she's thinking that all the way to the point where it's finished baking, it's in her hands, And there's Elijah sitting outside. And there's her son. Still facing that choice, isn't she? All the way up to the moment that she hands it to Elijah, she has the, the choice to keep it and die or to give it away and live. She can keep it, but if she does, she dies. The world says, keep it and you will live. Are you crazy? You can't give up. You've got to watch out for number one. But God says, feed my servant, and you'll have bread until it rains again. It's crazy. It takes faith, doesn't it? In my family, growing up, my dad used to... Uh, do something that has a lot of interesting properties. You could, you could put it in a, uh, a psychology book, I'm sure. He, he would say, open your mouth and close your eyes and I will give you a good surprise. Now, the question at that moment is, do you trust him? Right? What you want to say is, show me. What, what are you going to put in my mouth? I don't want to just open my mouth and close my eyes. I have no idea what's coming. Maybe I won't like it. That was never an option with my dad. Open your mouth, 
close your eyes and I will give you a good surprise. My dad loves to uh, get cream cheese on crackers and some good hot pepper jelly or some salami or some, some nice, nice treat and give it to people. He, he doesn't say, open your mouth and close your eyes and I will give you a good surprise to guests. But he will, he will say, here, open up. He's Ethiopian at heart, I guess. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Sometimes I would think, I know, I know that he has something that he thinks is good, but what if I don't think it's good? Like Skittles, sure, I mean, yeah, I'll take Skittles, but what's on, you know, what sort of strange cracker do you have? <laughs> and is there fish on it? Or what? I don't know. I, I would like to know, just, just tell me what it is, and then I'll decide. This widow was given this beautiful, beautiful postscript. Open your mouth and close your eyes and I will give you a good surprise. And by the way, this is what it is. But so much of the time, we just have the command, don't we? And we have the, that general promise that obedience to God leads to his blessing. Obedience to his command means that we will be blessed. We will profit. We will gain. There will be victory in him. All of these all of these things that you can speak of generically and then you can see in the Bible the particulars of how it worked out when people walked by faith. And then, and then you got to decide, am I going to obey or not? What I really want to know is the precise outcome in this case. I really want that postscript I really want it to be, and here is what it's going to be. What a blessing it was that she was told what would happen, right? It was good. It was a promise that the food wouldn't run out. Now, what I want you all to do is recognize that it still required tremendous faith for her to do that. Because for the bread to not run out, for the flour to always be there, for the oil to always be there, required a miracle. 
it's not like it didn't require faith. It did require faith. She had to decide whether she believed the word of God or not. And that's the same position that we always find ourselves in when we're faced with questions of faith. Do we believe God or not? And what I want you to realize is that in this case, the promise was that she would be able to live if she obeyed. But it looked like one less meal before she died. Many times when we're faced with questions of obedience, whether we will obey or not, we look at what it looks like will happen versus what God says will happen. And we think, man, it's just too much to be expected. It's too much for God to require. It's too much that God would expect me to obey in this case. It's, It's outrageous. And we're not really thinking about it being like, it requires too much faith. We're just, we're just thinking, it's not fair. It's not fair for God to require me to make this decision when it's choosing between providing for my family or obeying God. And, and that same choice hits us today still. We end up looking at the requirement of a job to, to compromise and to be corrupt in order to keep the job. This happens. It happens regularly. We, we, like, to, we like to blame corporations because corporations are evil, right? I mean, yeah, they're big, bad, nameless, faceless corporations. But of course, if they're bad then you can expect that the people who work there have to do bad things. There's, there's no getting around that in the end, there are always, always temptations and questions of will we obey or will we disobey? Will we believe God and his word or not. This woman responded with faith and then she obeyed. She believed God and then she obeyed. You know, I want you to remember the next time that you're faced with a decision that requires obedience, but that is going to take faith to do.
Open your mouth, close your eyes. I will give you a good surprise. Ask yourself, would I do that with God? Do I believe Him? That He has good for me. That His plan is for a hope and a future. You say, but, but it could mean the end of my employment. It could mean the end of my ability to provide for my family. But it could mean death. That's true. Faith and obedience have often led God's people to death. Elijah was provided for and lived, and many others died. Many others who believed in God. As Hebrews says, men and women of whom the world was not worthy. Are we going to be God's people? Are we going to care whether we're connected to the tree? Are we going to walk by faith and obedience? He has commanded. He will provide. We get to the end and we read the blessing of the Lord, the fulfillment of his promise. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. This is just as amazing and miraculous as the holding back of the rain. And maybe next week we'll, we'll read another passage in the New Testament about this very time on prayer. Elijah was just a man like us, but he prayed. And it didn't rain. And then he prayed and it rained. But for this week, I want you to Think about the woman. She believed. Do you believe? If you believe, then you can walk in obedience. And you will receive his blessing. And you must believe. Because if you don't believe and you don't obey, then there is nothing but a terrifying expectation of God's wrath. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Don't be one of those that seeks to throw him off the top of the cliff in response to his teaching. Yes, faith looks crazy to the world. Foolishness is what the Bible says. And a stumbling block. This is the gospel message. But 
It is the power of life for those who believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful gift that you've given us your word and that we have the teaching of Jesus explaining the Old Testament. Father, what a gift that we can read it and study it. What a gift it is to be reminded that we must walk by faith, that we must believe your promises and act accordingly. And that you will indeed bless your people. Father, we thank you for the warning that you give through Jesus that you will send your blessings and your good word elsewhere if we are hardened of heart and if we worship idols. Help us to have soft and tender hearts so that we will not be cut off and thrown away. Now, Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself as we continue our worship this morning through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.